All right. So today we're looking at uh, what does it take to be great? What does it take to be great? And the reason we're looking at that question is because we're in a, we're in a series uh, uh, called um, Angels We Have Heard. And so we're looking at various nativity stories and really focusing on what the angels say, the experience of the angels in those passages, what they teach. We talked last week about the fact that these are not screen extras. They're not just added to, there to add color, that the angels actually commutes, communicate some of the most important teachings about Jesus. And they not only teach us about Jesus, they teach us about what he came to do, they teach us why he came to do it. Very, very impactful what they have to say. And today's passage specifically speaks to this issue of greatness. Uh, it's one of the themes that, uh, that runs through it and where greatness comes from and how we should pursue greatness. Now, I have to admit that uh, most of the time I am more concerned with being great at something or at least being perceived as great at something than I am in pursuing greatness. But we're talking today about actually pursuing greatness. Now, I remember, you know, throughout life, we want to be great at different things, right? Um, when I was younger, like upper elementary into junior high, maybe the beginning of high school, I wanted to be great at football. And uh, I specifically wanted to be great at quarterback. And so started playing organized football in around ninth grade. Uh, but for many years uh, before that, and even into that time, played neighborhood football, street football. Played on the street in front of our house. And probably played hundreds and hundreds of games. So it's all mushed together. There are very few memories of anything in, in those games, just knowing day after day we'd be out there almost all year round, Florida could do that, and almost all year round, and we just didn't do other sports. We just played touch footballs, hundreds and hundreds of games. So I started thinking about what, what, um, what are some of the games that I actually remember. This last one relates to what I'm talking about and the reason why I remember. But I remember four, four scenes pretty well from all those years of football. And there's a theme that runs through them. <laughs> uh, one was the time I threw a football to a kid who was visiting his cousin and was playing football with us. Great, great young athlete. And uh, I mean, we were all impressed by him. And I threw the ball and he gets the ball and he turns around and he hits a mailbox with his face. <laughs> You're gonna feel bad that you laugh so loud, whoever that was. <laughs> He knocked a tooth out. I mean, one of his permanent teeth right in the front, completely with the whole root. We actually picked up the root. I mean, the, it, we picked it up, and they took it to the hospital, and they actually, and we didn't do all the right stuff. They actually were able to put it back in. Um, and he couldn't do any athletics for a year <laughs> after that. Uh, another one I remember is my best friend, who would, very emotional guy, would get very emotional, and he would get, you know, upset, you know, we we're going to have an argument on the football field, you know, we, you know, it, it would happen frequently. And this one time he got really upset and he was just, ah, and he rushed in and this kid threw the ball and after he threw it, he kind of, kind of gave him a shove. Kid went back, back, hit his head on, and knocked him out on the street. Probably a concussion. I still remember I, the scene that I remember more than anything. I remember him hitting his head, but I also remember my friend sitting in the sh behind the shed in his backyard crying. <laughs> He's, oh, I'm so stupid. I can't believe I did that. Just, just in absolute just brokenness over what he had done. A, uh, a third scene that I remember is a uh, time that I was going out for a pass, 
and just so concentrating on the ball that I ran full speed into my mom's VW Beetle. Actually dented the fender and the hood, my legs and the rest of my body. And the worst part of it was, we'd just come back from a doctor's visit where I had, because I had a broken collarbone, and the, my mom said, should he be playing football? And he said, no. <laughs> it's that day. <laughs> um, I don't know how I didn't uh, re-break it. I mean, I was playing like this, catching the ball, trying to catch it with one hand. Uh, but here's, here's the last story I remember. This is really the one I started with in my mind and why I was going to tell these stories. is because there was this kid that I played football with from ninth grade on, and, and he was from another neighborhood, uh, and we started talking about street football. And I, I said, well, why don't we go neighborhood against neighborhood? And I remember if we played two-on-two two or three-on-three three for this game, but we came, and I was looking forward to showing him. I didn't play quarterback in, in organized, neither did he, but I think we both wanted to. Um, but we, uh, we both, uh, we, we had this game, and the reason I remember it is because that's the day the dream of being a great quarterback was killed. <laughs> because we got killed. I mean, we got decimated. And we got decimated because this guy was such a tactician. I mean, they had developed a whole form of street football that I had never seen before in my life. It was quick. It was, it was amazing. And I, so, you know, I remember it because that's the day I go, like, I know nothing. <laughs> you know, and just, I, I think I'll go try to be great at something else <laughs> and, you know, moved on to, to other things. But God really wants us not just to be great at something. He wants us to actually pursue greatness. And it's good. It's good to pursue being great at something. If you're wanting to be great as a leader, you're wanting to be great as a parent, um, you want to be a great teacher, or even, even just being a great friend. I mean, these, these are good things, but God actually wants more. He actually wants us to pursue greatness. And Jesus taught on it, and the subject is introduced here, in an interesting way, a very subtle way, but very interesting way, uh, in this passage before he's, even, before he's even born. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 26. Page number is up on the screen. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And if, we, if, you, don't have, if you have a smartphone or tablet device, we're reading from the NIV, the New International Version. And... Uh, also, if you're brand new with us, by the way, hopefully you got a new here brochure on the way in and there's an outline for this week or a sermon application guide for this week in there. And a couple of features that I want to point out is, you know, the big ideas from the sermon are there. There's some family discussion questions. Now, uh, the family discussion questions in today's sermon application guide are last week's. I forgot to change them. All right, so uh, you can go on to Realm. If you don't know what Realm is, just ask what's Realm, and we'll send that to you. You can go on to Realm, and you can get the right questions, because that copy actually has the right questions in it. Uh, but normally, we're following what the kids are doing. We're not this week, uh, and so the questions are based on this sermon. So you'll want to read the passage and you know, lead a discussion. And then there's reflection questions that we also use in our small groups. All right, so here we go. Uh, beginning in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month... Of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. It's the previous story. We looked at it last week. God sent an angel, the angel Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, 
a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary said. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So, what does it take to be great? Uh, the first thing is five things we're going to look at, five things that we need to know in order to be great. I, I was going to look at the, using the same outline as last week. I wrote a whole sermon doing that, and it was just too clunky, so I simplified, so I didn't live up to my promise of doing that. Maybe next week. Uh, if you were here last week, I said that. So anyways, number one, only God is great, period. We need to know that only God is great, period. No qualifiers added to it. Um, let me explain what I mean. When the angel, Gabriel, same angel, appears to Zechariah, the angel says to Zechariah, he says, you will have a son, his name is John, and he will be great, and then there's a qualifier, in the sight of the Lord. When Gabriel comes to Mary uh, and says you will have a son, says he will be great, Period. No qualifier. Now, that is consistent with the Old Testament, which rarely takes the word great, applies it to a person without a qualifier. In almost every case, when great is applied to a person, there's a qualifier like before the Lord or something like that. Jesus needs no qualifier because he is the Lord and only the Lord is great. God is great. So God is the standard. Uh, God is the measure of greatness, and that's where we have to start. Even if we are to pursue greatness in the way that Jesus says to pursue greatness. All right, so first thing we need to remember, or know, if we don't know it already, is that only God is great, period. Secondly, we need to know that we are not. <laughs> we are not great, uh, we, and, and only in the, in the sense, what I'm saying is, in the sense that when the measure and standard of greatness is God, there is no one that reaches that standard. It's very similar to Romans in, in chapter 3 and verse 23, where, where it says, we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. Glory of God, no glory, <laughs> even among the best of us. Okay, So we are not great. Uh, this teaching is, is emphasized in this passage in a really interesting way, and it goes counter to a lot, how a lot of people see this passage. So it's, it's emphasized in the word favor, which is applied twice to Mary. So look at verse 28. 
the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now, the word for favor is a word that, is, that comes from the word grace. All right? So if you were to see it in the original language, you would see the commonality. The, the root of grace is there, and it means the same kind of thing as grace, which means unmerited favor. When God shows grace, or anybody shows grace towards someone, what's, what, it, what it is is, I am, I am showing kindness to you, even though you haven't merited it. It's, there's something you've done that requires my showing kindness to you or, or even obligates me in some way to show kindness to you. When you've done something for me and then I do something for you, it's no longer called grace what I'm doing. It's reciprocity, okay? It's no longer called grace. The grace of God means he has shown favor towards us, kindness towards us, not because we deserve it, because it would not be grace, but even though we don't deserve it. We've done nothing to, to merit it. And God alone is the dispenser of grace. It's, it's, it's actually in the form of the words here, uh, which might be misunderstood and is misunderstood by a lot of people as, as like Mary has found favor, meaning she has earned what is about to happen. She has done something so that God looks down and says, okay, who am I going to have, who, who is going to be um, my child born to, son of God born to? Uh, Mary is the most deserving. Let's choose her. It's, it's not that. God is the subject. She is simply the recipient of God's favor, of God's grace. And interestingly, it's emphasized in all kinds of ways throughout this passage. There's a, in spite of our tendency to maybe venerate Mary, which should be venerated, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a, a few moments in many ways, our, our, that tendency is already being counteracted in this, in this text. Um, so one of the ways that it's counteracted is if you just look at what happens in the passage before this one and this passage, uh, in this passage, it's like the passage goes out of its way to show that there is nothing particularly special about Mary that causes this to happen, that causes God to choose her for this particular uh, assignment. And so uh, some of the ways that commentators bring out um, throughout, throughout the ages, actually, is that Zechariah... Uh, the father of, of John the Baptist in the previous passage, it's to, we're told he comes from the priestly line of Aaron. Uh, Aaron's the brother of Moses. Uh, to be a priest in Israel, to be a legitimate priest in Israel, you had to be in the line of Aaron. So we're, we're given, it, it was a given, but it's emphasized. Zechariah was the, uh, uh, in the priestly line of, of Aaron, to, to, to double emphasize that. Mary, we know nothing about her, uh, doesn't say anything about her before this passage, about her devotion or anything like that. Zechariah and his wife are said to be righteous and blameless. Again, nothing about Mary before this. When the angel greets Zechariah, he actually uses his name. Mary, no, it emphasizes God's grace. You are highly favored. It's God's grace towards you. When uh, Zechariah is serving, when we meet Zechariah, he's serving in Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of Judaism. Whereas when we meet Mary, she comes from a town that is a nothing town, Nazareth. If you, uh, aside from the New Testament and archaeology, you know, archaeology has been done on the site of Nazareth, 
You go to all the rabbinic writings of this period and before this period. You go to all the um, intertestamental writings to historians of that period like Josephus. No mention of Nazareth. Why? It's about 150 people, little town in the middle of nowhere. One commentator puts it this way. It's like she's a, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's, it, and everybody there knows it. This is like Nazareth, what? And if they've heard of it, it's like... What good comes from Nazareth? It's a, it's a line from Scripture. That doesn't mean that Mary isn't an amazing young woman. She is an amazing young woman. And, uh, and very young. Uh, estimated between you know, 13 to 16 years old at this time, which makes it her all the more amazing. She doesn't doubt Gabriel the way Zechariah did, for example. Uh, Zechariah is a priest and he doubts God. Now, if you read it in your English translation, if you just go back, it sounds like they're asking the same question. They both say, how? But it's not the same word. In, in, in some of your, your translations, if you have a different translation, it might use a different word because it is a different word. And, and with the context of how Zechariah says it, he's testing. He says, no, you know, you got to prove this to me because this can't happen, is what he's saying. Mary is like, I don't understand. How can this happen? I I'm not married. I'm, I haven't been with a man. How, how can this happen? So Mary believes. Uh, Zechariah says, prove it. Zechariah is being asked uh, to believe in something that his scripture is filled with. It's like a theme that when God is going to do something new in history, that he picks the most unlikely people to do it. And one of the themes of the unlikely people is people have a child who have not been able to have a child or are beyond childbearing years. It's a theme. Zechariah should know that's a theme. A guy who somehow materializes right in front of him uh, is telling him that he is going to have a child and he uses the same excuse that the Bible is filled with, which is, how can we? My wife is ancient and I'm old and there's no way. We've not been able to have children. That's what he says, okay? Mary, there's no precedent whatever, whatsoever in the entire Bible for what's about to happen to Mary. None. She can't look back and say, well, that's kind of like Hannah or that's kind of like Sarah or something. She, she has nothing to compare it to. And yet she believes. She is an amazing, amazing young woman. But the whole emphasis is on God's grace, not on Mary's virtue. She's exemplary in her response, amazingly exemplary. But she is responding to the work of a sovereign, grace-filled God. She is, the sovereign God has chosen her in the same way he chose Israel. Now, he doesn't say this about Mary, but this is what he says about Israel. I chose Israel not because Israel is powerful, not because they're better than other nations to, be my, to, take, to take my word forward into the world. I chose Israel simply because I love Israel. It was like, what he's saying is, because I'm God and I'm sovereign, I choose whom I will. This is a sovereign choice. He has elected Mary to this role and she is cooperating with what he's doing. So, God is great. We are not... <laughs> period. That's where it all starts in this quest for greatness. <laughs> all right, so what's the third thing we need to know? We need to know that we can achieve greatness. We actually can achieve greatness because Jesus said we can. And he said there's two ways to achieve greatness. Now, uh, if you haven't cheated by looking ahead in the notes, you may have already thought 
about one of those ways are. You may have thought of what, what both of those ways are, but the first way is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so Jesus, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, so the Sermon on the Mount begins with uh, what are called the Beatitudes. And they just speak about how the people that are going to be blessed in this world are the people who basically have nothing, they know they have nothing, and they come to God and they say, I've got nothing. <laughs> I, 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 I need you, God. And it starts with probably the most beautiful of Beatitudes, which is those who are poor in spirit are going to be blessed. Poor in spirit. Recognize I've got nothing to bring to God. Uh, it's, it's, I just fall on his, at his mercy and his grace. Uh, but that's not to say that we, the way we live has nothing to do with our relationship with God. And so Jesus, after these Beatitudes, uh, begins to give some teaching as to a standard of living that is above even what most of us reading the Bible would think we're called to live to. And he starts out by saying, listen, the law, especially he's talking about the moral law here, excuse me a minute, <coughs> the law is not uh, given, the, 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 the law is, is, needs to still be fulfilled, the moral laws still need to be fulfilled. They're very important to be fulfilled. And then he says this in Matthew 5.19. He says, whoever practices and teaches these commands, referring to the law, the law of God, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So obedience to God leads to greatness. That's what Jesus says. I want you to pursue greatness. Here's how you pursue it. Is out of the grace of an abundance of my grace that you receive from me when you come with empty hands. You, you live to a standard of the kingdom that I'm calling people to live to, and I'll help you do that. And so the whole New Testament shows how it is that, that he helps us to do that. Now, according to Jesus, then, if we look back in the story, Mary is great in that way uh, because she has received God's favor, his grace, and responded appropriately. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary had answered. Here it is. May your word be fulfilled. That's saying, I will do whatever you say. May your word be fulfilled. One commentator summarizes her words and her attitude really well. He says, basically she's saying, look, I don't know what all this means, but I'm going to trust you because I know uh, that you do what is good. I'm going to trust you. And that's basically what obedience is. Obedience flows from, most naturally, I mean, you can, like, you know, muster up the will, but obedience flows from believing that what God tells us to do is what is best and believing it's so down deep in our hearts, and the more that we believe it, the more naturally we do what God has called us to do. And it, doesn't, it, it, it covers everything. It covers how we, what God says about treating people, about how we spend our money. It covers how we use our bodies. Uh, God speaks to all those things. And following in obedience to him uh, comes from his grace and just accepting what God says is what's good, better than whatever I might think or what I might desire. So uh, a, a second way that Jesus says that ungrade people like Mary and like you and me, how, um, how it is that we can achieve greatness comes from a story uh, in the Gospels where Jesus is interacting with his disciples. And it's a pretty well-known story where 
James and John, the sons of thunder, brothers, sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus and they say, they're a really interesting question they ask, will you do for us exactly what we ask? <laughs> it's like, we're going to have a big ask and want to know right now, before we ask, will you do it? And <laughs> Jesus goes, what is it? And they say, well, we would like to sit at your right hand and on your left hand when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says, well, if you want to do that, then you're going to have to suffer what I'm going to suffer. They go, we're, we're ready. Jesus goes, okay, um, well, you're right. You will suffer what I'm going to suffer. But it's not mine to give. It's the Father's to give. And uh, so the disciples get really angry. They've overheard <laughs> what has been asked for. These two brothers, you know, have gone to the front of the line and said, you know, we want to be first. We want to be first. And we want to be the greatest. And so Jesus calls them together and he says, you know, in the world that you live in, the way that the Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, the way that they kind of run things, it's all about power. And the weaker serve uh, the powerful and they think greatness is bossing people around. It's not how it works in my kingdom. And this is what he says. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness is achieved by serving, serving God and serving others. Again, this is, this is the epitome of Mary's response. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, She's, which is the word for slave. I am the Lord's slave. It's an amazing response. And this response is what makes Mary great. And it's how we can become great. Now, in essence, we become great by becoming more like Jesus, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But this is what it says in Philippians chapter 2, a familiar passage, uh, beginning verse 6, speaking of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus models for us servanthood. Jesus models obedience. Now, fourth thing that we need to know if we're going to be great, what does it take to be great, is that our greatness is always a qualified greatness. It's not great, period. It's never great, period. In both passages that I just said where Jesus said we're going to be great, there are qualifiers in there. So one of, one of the ones he says, you want to be great, great among you. <laughs> among you, there's the qualifier. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And uh, in the other passage, it says, we'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there's another qualifier, all right? So it's not you'll be great like Jesus is great, the standard. It's, it's not greatness, period, like the greatness of God. One last thing uh, when it comes to how can we be great, um, we need to know that achieving greatness is never easy. Even this qualified greatness, it's never easy. In some ways, it's becoming harder and harder to achieve this kind of greatness. 
You know, to achieve the kind of greatness where you serve and where you're obedient to God. Think about that. Where you serve other people in a world where service is not, well, in some ways, yes, but in other ways, it's about power. It's about getting, you know, getting there first, uh, taking it for yourself. I mean, that's, that's usually how we think about things in our, in our world. And the idea of obedience, I mean, it's, it's being lost everywhere, even in churches, even among Christians, the idea of obedience. I mean, I'm uh, obedient in my sexuality to, to what the Bible holds, obedient in my attitude, how I think, uh, o- obedient in the way that I speak, the words that I use, the attitude that I convey to the people around me. It's, it's, it's like it, it's, being, it is, it is becoming more and more difficult. Last week, we, we look at the kind of world that we live in as one, one philosopher, Charles Taylor, calls it a disenchanted world. So it's a world that has been um, basically, uh, God has been taken out. Uh, we may believe there's a God, but it's not really active. We don't really look to him for guidance in our world. Uh, the, the whole idea is that there are no gods, no angels, that we can look to for direction, for hope, or any of those kinds of things in, in our world. And we're being called in that world to obey that God and to serve that God. So it's becoming harder and harder to do that. It's a world, a disenchanted world, according to Charles Taylor, is a world that has been drained of God or gods or angels. You're almost shamed in, in our world if you appeal to God in the public square for something uh, or even... God's general grace, you're almost shamed for, for even believing that kind of thing, that there's a God that's active and that he's communicated with us. It doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. Again, it just means he's not, he's not speaking to us. We can't trust the Bible. We can't trust what it says. That's, that's the world. It's a disenchanted world that we live in, and it's hard to pr- pursue a, a life of sacrificial service an obedience that is countercultural today, it's really, really difficult to do that. In a disenchanted world where this life is all there is because that's what that world is. This life is all that, that there is and this life is all that really matters. The goal is to get as much as you can out of it for yourself, your family, your tribe. That's how most of history has functioned. Get the most for yourself. Um, in most traditional cultures, not for yourself, but for your family and your tribe. Um, now it's mostly for yourself and your family, very little about the tribe in our world. And we buy into it in, to some degree. And this is a very story we don't choose to believe necessarily. It's like talked about last week. Mike Cosper says, no, we, we hear it in thousands of stories that we hear every single day. A world devoid of God, a disenchanted world. And because we're conditioned by this perspective... It's how we even read the Bible. So we read the Bible to see what it says about us, you know, kind of, and what promises does it make to me, and what kind of, you know, can I claim so that I can get something that I want. That's how we read the Bible. But the trajectory of our lives should be defined by following Jesus rather than the trajectory of me, my family, my tribe. Following Jesus, his kingdom agenda, serving others, Obedience to Christ, even when it doesn't feel good. Not being run by our feelings, what feels good or what feels right. Even when it results in suffering, 
because we're serving someone and it's taking our time and our energy and it may be painful in many ways or suffering for the sake of Christ because it's not deemed to be socially acceptable that we would do something in the name of Christ. And to say that it's not easy in our world is like a monumental understatement. <laughs> it is very, very difficult. There is, in our culture, our con- culture is constantly pushing a counter-Christ perspective on us. And if we don't push back in our own hearts and lives, in our own hearts and lives, I'm not, trying, I'm not talking about trying to change the world politically or anything, if we don't, in our own hearts and lives, push back, if we don't try to live by another story, if we don't immerse ourselves in that other story, we get overwhelmed by the disenchanted world. And most of us are somewhere in that continuum, overwhelmed by the disenchanted world, disenchanted ourselves, finding it very, very difficult to really obey God when the rubber meets the road and it's gonna be difficult to obey God, when it's gonna go against my feelings or my desires or whatever it might be, we find ourselves in a place where it's very, very difficult. It's why we gather together, why we should be praying every day throughout the day, why we should be spending time in God's story to tell us that, that alternate story and reflecting on that story. It's why we do these things. It's, to, it's because if we don't, if we don't, if we don't, the, the world is just like this onslaught. If we don't push back with even greater energy, we are overwhelmed by it. And we soon think that making money is more important than God. The football is more important than God and growing in him. That the busyness of our lives, that we're really accomplishing something so we don't have time for God, we don't have time for others, we don't serve others, we don't live by his agenda, we don't care about the poor, we don't care about the downcast, the hurting person. That's what happens in our lives. It becomes, we revolve around ourselves. And this season is a time to recapture that wonder. This season is a time to recapture that wonder. And I, and I hope you're recapturing it. And I hope you will. And that you'll, you'll live by an alternate story. It's a challenge for my own life. And I hope you accept it as a challenge for your life. Let's pray together.